Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. What is happening, everybody? Thank you for downloading this episode and caring about independent music. I'm actually currently in, well, actually, no, technically, I am back from Japan. I'm recording this in advance. I'll show you a little peek behind the curtain because uh, I just knew that these next couple of weeks are going to be absolutely insane for me personally, and being able to record this almost in real time would be next to impossible. So, uh, yeah, I'll have just returned from a tour in Japan that uh, hopefully I'll be able to tell you is incredible. And if it's not incredible, I'll edit that for a future episode. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we just got back from playing shows with uh, Hope's Fall over in Japan with my band Taken. And, uh, yeah, but I am no way going to stop releasing this podcast because I enjoy it so much. And, obviously, I got to keep, uh, keep the content flowing for you fine people who are checking in on this for a week-to-week basis. And this week is a longtime friend of mine. His name is Sam Macon. He played in a band called Sense by Man, who released some stuff on uh, Revelation Records. I was actually trying to think of the label that they uh, put stuff out on before, but I cannot recall off the top of my head, but they released an amazing split with Seven Days of Samsara. They're from the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area. Definitely existed in the sort of late 90s, early aughts, like Screamo, Orchid, you know, Encyclopedia of American Traders, which is one of my favorite bands. Uh, I absolutely adore that band, but existed in that very DIY scene. And then it was interesting to watch them follow their own muse and make business decisions and stuff like that in regards to, you know, I know this may sound ridiculous for some of the young listeners that exist out there where it's like the concept of having a barcode on your record and being like too slick and commercial and like quote unquote pro core. (laughs) 
<laughs> These are all discussions that were had at one point. But um, anyways, Sam was the vocalist for the band. I always loved what they did. And I thought musically they were really cool. Artistically, they were really cool. They were pushing the envelope in a lot of different directions. Uh, the layouts for their records were phenomenal. Like just really, really cool and interesting things going on. And Sam has since made a career out of directing commercials and he's done documentary work, working on feature films, and he's just a creative dude. And I always knew that he was destined for things other than just screaming his head off in a band. Not saying that that is a bad profession, but you get what I'm saying. So that's what we have on the show this week. You can always, of course, email me, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. Please support the sponsors of this show. They make the the world go round as far as <laughs> making sure this thing is uh, you know on the tracks and obviously making money so I'm not just like doing this for my own mental health even though realistically I am kind of just doing it for my mental health but support them because uh, yeah that, there's a reason that I work with them I believe in these companies wholeheartedly and I think that you should support what they do and on top of that you can also this is taking you 30 seconds and it costs you zero dollars go to the Apple podcast page drop a rating and review on there. Same thing could be said about Spotify. That's actually even easier. You can just leave a star rating if you are listening to it on that platform. It helps out in ways that uh, I just, I mean, I could bore you and describe how it helps, but ultimately it just gets the show discovered. And of course you can share on social media. Again, all of those things are free and it just takes you 30 seconds to do it. And then plus people find out about it because the best way to spread this thing is word of mouth, of course. So anyways, let's uh, let's talk to my boy, Sam. But first, before we dive into the conversation with Sam, I had to tell you about one of our amazing sponsors, and that is Iodine Recordings. First off, they're an unbelievable record label, so you need to consume all of what they do. Like, I'll just give you a little snapshot of some of the cool stuff that they have done recently. They are reissuing Quicksand's legendary Slip LP. It's the 30th anniversary. They have a really unbelievable, like, deluxe box set with, like, this crazy booklet that lists a bunch of cool liner notes and amazing things. They also reissued one of my favorite positive hardcore records, potentially ever, Stretch Armstrong's Rituals of Life, and they also work with a lot of other cool bands from people you have known from previous bands. Like there's a band called Her Heads on Fire, features members of Garrison, and they also work with a band called The Darling Fire, who is ex-Rocking Horse winner and Shy Halud and all that stuff. But Go to iodinerecordings.com, find out about your potential new favorite band or rediscovering one of your old favorite records. Iodine Recordings is such a cool label, and I am proud to partner with them. So go check out their website and find out all about the label. Now, here's the discussion with Sam. You've existed in my life for 20 plus years, and I was trying to, and I'm sure that you have this with a lot of your your friends who you've met through the beautiful uh, punk and hardcore scene, trying to trace where you first met the person is virtually impossible. But I think, if I'm not mistaken, we first met when Sense by Man came out with uh, Seven Days of Samsara. 
<laughs> and you guys played at Coos Cafe here in Southern California. And uh, I, I think that was the first time. I, I could be completely wrong, but um, I don't know if that tracks with you. Yeah, that sounds right to me. You know, our our Southern California experience as a band, um, at this point, these many years down the road, has become this sort of really largely very beautiful very nostalgic in a good way um, grab bag of great shows, really formative people and experiences that sort of exist in this own little box as part of like the whole since by man experience and my experience with like punk and hardcore music in general, because even prior to, I think since by man making it out here or maybe in conjunction with, or shortly thereafter, I came out with seven days also just as like a roadie. Um, right. In large part, just because I was very excited to get back to SoCal, which always treated us much nicer than say places like, uh, you know, Utah or the entire Southeast with few. <laughs> right. Right. And I think the thing that, that struck me about you guys, as I started to, you know, see you play and interact with your music was that, and I know that this is totally in hindsight, but just the idea that there was a more professional nature in just the presentation of the band. Like there was the idea that yes, because especially too within the context of, I'll use uh, some large air quotes here, some, you know, the, the screamo scene at large, uh, there was always this idea that, that it was going to only last for a very short period of time. Whereas like since my band seemed like, you guys had the idea that not like you were going to be like a business plan band or, you know, pro core, whatever you want to, <laughs> you want to call it. But does that um, statement kind of track with you at all in regards to the fact that there was a little more, okay, we, you know, are, are, are trying to approach this as serious as we can with our, our art. And maybe this will last longer than like a year and a half. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's interesting to have you, sort of start there because the origin of the band as was the case with most bands at that time was a bit of like a fluke or not a fluke, but just, it was a one band breaks up and a new band begins because two of the guys from the old band asked a new person to be a singer. And then we're looking for a guitar player and a bass player. And then boom, since my man is born. And even though that that's the way it did begin, um, we had, let me take it back one notch. Please. I think when we began the band, we were beginning the band. And this is like a larger idea that I have about this, the state of this scene over the past like 20 years is that there was almost zero possibility or zero um, temptation. No one was starting a hardcore band in 1999, early 2000s, um, expecting to like make it big in a commercial sense. There were certain levels of like scene, um, success that was desirable if for no other reason than that meant you got to play in front of more kids and you got to play with bands that you idolized more but that was kind of like the top of it there was no oh maybe we'll get signed to a major i don't know what it would have been like had we started the band that way um but it had nothing to do with the inception and the ideas that we had about what being a band was going into it i know where our sort of professionalism or our taking it seriously component came from. And that was just like 
really treating the band as a project beyond the music itself. We wanted to compose, well, I don't even know how much intent we had with the music we composed. The music kind of came from, you know, the music part is witchcraft. But what we wanted to do around all of that was create a really compelling show, stay really involved with people kind of beyond the show, make sure that every piece of artwork from a t-shirt to a handmade CD cover to then, you know, a larger release albums. We wanted all of that stuff to be done kind of with maximum intention. Um, You know, I know from like the lyric writing standpoint, I wanted everything to really hit. And I wanted it to either, you know, I wanted to hit one of two ways. I wanted it to like mean something to someone, whether it was broadly or aggressively political or more mm, personally political. Sure. Or I wanted it to be fun and extremely activating. So everything we were doing was kind of trying to get at one of those two things. And the best examples, I think, of what we did um, combined the two together. So there was a lot of intent and we weren't we weren't fuck ups. I mean, in a extraordinary sort of way, we were normal fuck ups. Uh, Sure. (laughs) But we wanted to, like, put on a good show. We took it seriously. We wanted the shows to be tight and ferocious and highly engaging um, you know, and then the, the, a lot of the material was relatively serious. I know one thing that we would run into, um, as we were starting to gain some steam is that people would be like surprised that we were like nice and funny also because we right. kind of presented serious within the context of the performance fun, but like, again, serious and professional. And then we were, you know, largely like Midwestern goofballs who just really wanted to have like the best time possible in between shows as well. Right. Well, and I think that the word that you said that resonated with me, I was trying to describe it to you was the intentionality. And that is, I think that's what reflected with other bands that, I mean, we were, to your point, we were all operating off of a level of instinct and just, you know, reactionary where it's like, oh, I got to put out a demo, whatever. Do you have a, you know, you got a cool photo you can put on there. And so I I think there was just those little nuggets that I saw and even from your earliest releases where you said there was this level of cohesiveness that you probably weren't able to articulate at that time, but just be like, okay, we want to focus we want this thing to look like our shirt and vice versa. And I, I think that was what I know gra- I gravitated towards and many other people did as well. Yeah. Well, that's glad. You know, I'm glad to hear that. I think I was, right. uh, <laughs> I, I was pretty obsessed with that part of it, largely because I was coming to the entire music experience as a fan of my friend's bands and a, like an active member in the scene but not as a musician. You know, I had no musical talent and that's not like me being self-deprecating. There's plenty of time for that. Uh, But, you know, I was kind of coming at it from like a a show thrower and a, I mean, not a promoter in a conventional sense, but like I ran a house prior to that. I was always helping other friends bands with like t-shirts, CD art, you know, taking lots of pictures. So the, the presentation component of it was sort of the part that I had the most, direct control over and engagement with because that's kind of what I could like bring to the table. That probably wasn't something I was thinking about. That makes it sound a little bit more professional. Like what do I have to offer uh, Kevin sure. and John as a potential lead singer? But I was, I was coming at it from like a band as art project um, standpoint, as opposed to 
I like these, I like to perform these drum fills or these vocal stylings. That part was like very secondary. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Oh, totally. I, I get, I get where you're coming from and we'll pull on a few of those threads a little bit later, but I wanted to focus on you as a human, just as far as the, the biographical things. I know you were sure. born and raised in Milwaukee, uh, which in my opinion is a pretty slept on city in regards to most people know, you know, one or two facts about it where it's like, Oh, that's where Harley Davidson headquarters are, you know, some sports thing. But did you, I guess, as you were growing up, did you have a, a overall positive experience with the city or was it like, I can't wait to get the hell out of here. Like most people are with their home city. No, though I did end up getting the hell out of there. I, my experience with Milwaukee is largely like a love affair. Um, and that's not seen it with rose colored glasses or hindsight. We were really engaged even like at the high school level prior to since by man existing, I was really engaged with the city. I think what's, I think, I think something that a city like Milwaukee has to offer is access. You know, there aren't a lot of like big dogs at the gate keeping you down. The small dogs that were at the gate did keep us down a little bit. And we probably had a bit of a chip on our shoulder in that regard, but we didn't have like the Chicago chip on the shoulder, the we're not New York thing. Milwaukee was its own little, its own place. And there was a lot of access and it was a low cost of living. And it was really a place and it's continued to be a place for a fair number of people that I'm still very close with. It was a place where it was like the rent was cheap, cost of living was low. And if you want to make some noise and create things, it provides a lot of opportunity for that. The exchange is that you get almost no outside attention whatsoever. And the fact that we were from Milwaukee was like an anomaly onto itself or like a bit of like a like a novelty um, is a better word for it. You know, right. Because people right. do have the like, it's weird how pervasive like the the Laverne and Shirley or even like that 70s show shit like really sticks. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, it, there were not a lot of direct comparable peer bands that got out and got big. Um, obviously we were part of a cohort um, of bands that sonically sounded very different than us, but we're coming at music making from the same sort of like community underground self manifested ethos. Um, but it wasn't like, Oh, there's a strong tradition of like, uh, art- artistically aggressive hardcore bands that we are going to be a part of as if we had been like from Seattle and were, um, you know, peers with like the botch guys or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no. And that I, and I, I think that's why the, like you said, it's, it's cool to have that confluence of events where you're close enough in proximity to certain scenes where the influence bleeds over, but then at the same time you're left to your own devices where, like you said, you can do whatever the hell you want. So that's, it's, it gives you, it gives you the space to, you know, be whatever the hell (laughs) you want to be without those implications of like, Oh, you don't fit in with this certain thing. It's like, yeah, that's fine. For sure. And I think, you know, a younger, like someone a few years younger than me, that was maybe um, more of like a fan of since by man than a participator in the band. But I felt like we were not just since my man specifically, but us and our kind of compatriots, seven days, um, call me lightning, 
you know, a lot of those bands, we were like building our own thing. We were not trying to kick the doors down to some pre-existing thing. It was our right. scene wholly manifested in our house shows, then our V, you know, VFW shows, then our, then our venue shows. Um, it was always like really created kind of from the ground up. I'm sure we were operating or building on some pre-existing infrastructure, but not much. Yeah, for sure. And what was your family structure like growing up? Like mom and dad in the house, brothers and sisters, where did that all play itself out? Mom and dad uh, got divorced when I was 14. Um, I have two younger sisters. Um, We stayed, we're a close knit loving family. Um, You know, the, the parents divorce was tough for me because I was highly, I was like very much a developed person at that point. Um, I was pretty tuned in to what was going on in a way that maybe even uh, kind of extended beyond my my years uh, due to being, um, you know, a, a snoop and sort of an investigator. I mean, I just had like, I had extreme knowledge of like what was going on with the marriage. And I'm sure it accelerated some of my maturity for better or worse while my sisters were younger and dealt with it in probably the more conventional like children of divorced parents situation like sat down had the talk i knew the content of the talk before i was given the talk if that makes sense um yeah but right my parents were incredibly supportive i mean prior to the band you know i had always wanted to be a filmmaker which is what i'm doing now they never told me to have a fallback plan um you know great great parents love my sisters dearly and we're still very close, but it was a big rupture heading into high school, kind of exactly at the time in which I'm looking to get away with as much as humanly possible. So even though it was sad that it happened and I'm sure, you know, it's caused, um, some damage that I, you know, get to still talk about in therapy periodically to this day, it was like the right time for a kid who was trying to like catch the city bus to a part of town that I wasn't probably supposed to go to, to see, like the promise ring play in a basement, for example, you know, they had a lot right. going on. Um, right. Yeah. They were like, as long as Sam's not coming back with, uh, you know, visible wounds, like I think we're okay. Yeah. As long as he doesn't get arrested. Um, he right. seems like he's on a reasonable trajectory, you know, going to university like in, in Milwaukee and then, and getting a film degree And midway through that experience, like beginning the band and doing that like deeper into my late 20s, I'm sure there were moments where they were like, oh, boy, he's really uh, headed in a um, (laughs) a direction different than the one. Yeah. Than than the one we had maybe plotted out for him. But the ship had sailed and I had become a pretty independent person um, early on. But that was not to say that I was like this some sullen loner sort of like angsty teen at least not towards my parents my most of my rage was kind of pointed outward at the at the world that i was you know growing increasingly aware of right right and the i i knew i mean clearly we were going to talk about uh film and your love for the visual medium that uh dovetails well with the discovery of music like you know, because clearly there are so many subcultures that you can get into with film as well, whether it's just like, oh my gosh, I'm obsessed with, you know, Italian zombie movies or whatever. Um, did, did 
film introduce itself to before music kind of took hold or were they all happening at the same time? Yeah. I mean, I wanted to be a, a, a filmmaker or a director from like age, like six or something like that. I mean, I saw, right. you, you know, I saw like Indiana Jones and Beetlejuice and ET and big trouble in little China and all these like crazy movies at a young age. And I was like, whatever that is, that's what I want to do. And that was always my primary sort of obsession, but it was never, that's not a so at that point, especially in a city like Milwaukee, that's not a social environment. I mean, my friends and I made kind of jackass derivative sketch comedy stuff, even though it was sort of before jackass, um, you know, films throughout high school, but, but the, the community and all of my social connections as early as 14, 15 started being developed around like skateboarding and music. You know, I was never current with music as a kid, like, you know, fifth grade, middle school kids are listening to um, whatever they're playing at co-ed dances or new kids on the block. I mean, all of this like really vapid, really terrible, popular music. And I was kind of still like, or increasingly digging into my parents' records or like the classic rock um, genre, you know, like Beatles forever, Zeppelin, um, and then getting increasingly like weird and deeper from there, but there was nothing new and no, no, nothing to identify with. Couldn't come to school at that point. Anyway, it was pretty weird to like come to school in like a Beatles t-shirt. Um, and <laughs> that then, was edgy. Yeah. Or it was just like, who, um, or, or that my parents listened to that. Uh, but as soon as I sort of, I mean, the the gateway drugs are are probably familiar to most, but it's like Beastie Boys, primarily via skateboarding, a few random tracks like Waiting Room on skate videos, and then it's and then it's introduction to poppier punk stuff, and then as soon as you've ingested enough like No Effects and Rancid and Green Day, because that's all growing accessible um, or growing in popularity at that point, then all of a sudden one of your friends who's digging a little bit deeper is like, we're going to go to a Jesus lizard concert. And I'm like, I don't know who Jesus lizard is. I've never listened to this before in my life. And we're there and we're like 15 years old. We've got like parents picking us up and dropping us off at, um, you know, a Jesus lizard concert. And you're seeing something like that. And your mind is fully kind of cracked open. And then you're just looking for, I mean, the drug metaphor is, is apropos. It's like, you're just like, how much crazier can it get? How much heavier can it get? How much more adventurous can it get? And you just go down the the rabbit hole and then you're, you know, and then it's 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 all the it's all the titles that we're familiar with. And as you're pursuing this music, the community is growing stronger and broader, you know. And um it really just it's like I owe I owe so much of my 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 life, the robustness of my experiences, like the number of friends I've made um, to going down that rabbit hole. I have no idea who I would be if that didn't happen. Because if I had kind of languished as like a film nerd going to comic cons, you know, I don't, I, I, I shudder to think. There is no better time than the present to take whatever listening device you were using, open the web browser and go to rockabilia.com 
because they are a purveyor of fine merchandise from up and down your favorite bands. Like, I don't care if you're into the Beatles, Rolling Stones, Grateful Dead, <laughs> Cradle of Filth, Typo Negative, the list could go on. Officially licensed merch from all of these bands. So the bands get paid. You're supporting an independently run company here in the United States of America based out of Minneapolis. So they ship it to you very fast. The promo code, most important thing, 100 words or less. 10% off your entire order. Rockabilia, they've been in business for 20 plus years, and I just love what they do because they can be your one-stop shop for a bunch of gifts and items for yourself. So thank you very much for your continued support, Rockabilia. And again, use the promo code 100 words or less. 10% off your order. Now go now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different things that stress us out, right? Like maybe it's something really, really small, like, man, that parking space, it's always taken. And I wish that I would be able to like get it instead of, you know, this person that maybe, you know, is the most courteous and considerate. I know that's something very random, but it's true. We all experience different things throughout the day that trigger us in so many different ways. And there are many times where I have been like, I wish that I had a a spot or a repository for me to, you know, get this stuff off of my chest. Because if you bottle it up, that is no bueno. And then all of a sudden you explode on a coworker or a friend or a family member being like, the parking spot. And people are like, what are you talking about? That is where therapy comes in. And I love working with BetterHelp because I'm a huge advocate for therapy, broadly speaking. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It is so easy because it's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire and then you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you are not vibing with the therapist for any reason, you can switch it out at no additional charge. Get things off of your chest with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash Ray today to get 10% off of your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Ray. I, I think the the proactivity that can happen within like you said, all of these music scenes, not to say that you can't do that within film. Cause like you said, you can easily, you know, do these, whatever prank comedy, you know, special effects videos, all that sort of stuff you can do on your own and then, you know, show to your parents in the living room or whatever. But it, the world feels a little more tangible when you can just, you know, like you said, go to a Jesus lizard show and watch David Yao, like ride on the floor. And you're like, Oh, so I want to, <laughs> I could probably do some version of that where it's like, you know, Indiana Jones, you're like, dude, that's going to take, I, I got to be like a, a grown ass adult for that. <laughs> I can't do that. Yeah. It, I mean, it's something that you, you sit around waiting to become an adult, to get to do things. If you don't find the activating DIY nature of punk, where by the age of 16 or 17, you're firmly within a thing. That is a, that is a, it's a series of events. It's a community. It's our projects. It's, it's audience. It's all of that stuff. Um, I, I would be remiss probably to not tell the, like the more detailed version of the David Yao story. And it's kind of amazing Please. that I even became a singer, continued to go to shows because, so this was for all the kids listening. This is before there were any like barriers or any security at a show of like, 1500 people so it's just like fully exposed stage to a very crazy one of the more dynamic awesome bands um then and since and so and we're little people we're small we're kids 
And I'm right, like right. My, my girlfriend, my high school girlfriend is, is part of the group. And we are all stage diving kind of like relentlessly on loop. And for any of like the old heads of that show, we're probably like, get these kids off the stage. <laughs> totally. It's like, well, that's cute. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and at some point, my, I, I'm, I'm, I'm young enough to be wildly intimidated and interested by it all. But my, my girlfriend at the time was, a, she was a wild, she was a wild girl and she was loving it, but she got like mule kicked by David Yao. Like, and she launched sort of <laughs> over the first tier of, of, of showgoers kind of like into the circle and just landed on the ground and she hairline fractured her skull <laughs> and and the show just does not stop. We like dragged her out of the pit and I ended up leaving the show in an ambulance with her, um, needing to call her very conservative parents and tell them right. what happened. I doubt they even knew where she was. Um, and, and that's when I knew Ray that I had to be a singer in a band. Um, <laughs> totally. You're like, this is, this is great. You know, I, yeah. I, but I, I do, I, it just like the, the, the visual of the idea that you can go down the uh, you know path of like you said, I mean now that pop culture and comic cons and all of that is more you know is arguably as mainstream as everything else that people experience culture wise. That would have really put you down because it, it, it you know the <laughs> even though you work with so many people to put films together, it is a solitary pursuit. Whereas like just the idea of obviously playing in a band and creating that art, like you have no choice, but to usually, especially for, you know, talentless people like vocalists, I can make that joke for obvious reasons. (laughs) Um, Like we have to enlist other people. Whereas like, you know, there's, and of course, same thing can be said about film, but like there, it just, it it seems a little more easily attainable to a teenager. Absolutely. And it's a participatory in a way that filmmaking as a fan is not, um, you know, in the beginning, you're really just watching stuff. And maybe if I had been like an extreme indoor kid who wasn't very socialized, um, you know, I would have written my first screenplay. I would have been a better student for one. Uh, I would have written my first screenplay at uh, 18, would have moved out to LA and I'd be a totally, I'd be wildly successful. I don't know. doesn't matter yeah, because everything about the process of being in the band and the process of making films for me continues to be like a highly com- like community based project. It always is that at a professional level with film, but that's not the uh, consumer experience in a way that being a consumer, quote unquote, of like small bands in a basement is a community based experience intrinsically because certain like a certain amount of effort has been done to get there um, beyond just like paying the fee of, say, like a Comic Con. So. You know, and the more yeah. I like listen back to some of like the since by man, like the lyrics, like the idea of people being together to do anything is so central to my entire uh, person. Like, I don't even I don't even know about the relevance of the individual at this point, because right. so, much of, <laughs> so much of the value of my life has been about me engaging with others, not me doing something on my own. Right. And I I think that is a very important point to, especially as you start to define your roles, not only in the creative pursuit, 
that you are going for, whether it's in a band or whether it's film, but just being like, okay, I'm, I'm good. I'm the, you know, I'm the show booker guy or I'm the t-shirt designer or I'm the, the loader. Like you just start to be able to understand your value in all of those. And then, like you said, be able to, <laughs> as you grow, apply those disciplines across things that you're like, oh, wow, this is weird. I never thought that this would like pop up in the, the, you know, the adult professional world or whatever, but it does. For sure. I mean, I talk a lot with um, Justin Kay, our first guitar player, who's like a gra- who went down like the graphic design route. We continued to be a band for several years and several releases after he left the band to pursue his career. But just the number of times that in our now very different professional careers, we end up running into people that we knew previously or people that were in bands that we knew or what have you. And these are like not at shows. These are in meetings. Um, right. <laughs> you know, the, um, the, um, the, uh, the, it's such a universal language for a certain group of people from a certain scene. And I think, you know, everybody's obviously going to be like a heightened fan of the one that they were a part of. But I do think that early aughts um, scene was really just like robustly creative. Like it makes sense that a lot of people have gone on to do other creative things, not exclusively just like one band after another, though that has also happened. Yeah. Oh, totally. I I agree. And especially too, where it's like, because these subcultures have existed and have been given time to, you know, spread its tentacles into (laughs) different parts of our culture, there's time now and everybody has been able to spring this into ways that's like, oh yeah, like I'm not playing in a band, but I'm still artistically engaged and doing this, which is just as valuable as still playing in a band. (laughs) For sure. The, um, so you're correct me if I'm wrong, like since by man, wasn't your actual first band, was it, or did you play in uh, something prior to that? Since by man was my actual first band. I do believe there were two practices of a punk ska band in high school, um, that devolved into, you know, probably petty vandalism, um, and, uh, <laughs> like tr- trolling parking lots or whatever we did back then in the suburbs. Um, but that never manifested into anything. So since by man is definitely was definitely my first band. Um, Everyone else involved in like the, the early incarnations had been in, had been in bands that like I had been friends with and fans of. Got it. Got it. And so to be clear, what was this uh, ska band's name? Because every ska band of that uh, era obviously has a very, very good name. I don't think we even made it that far. I really do. That's okay. That's I mean, okay. It's whatever okay. it would be would be so intensely embarrassing. I would be quick to share it, but I don't right. think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. think. I don't think we had one. I mean, I would remember <laughs> if we did. For sure. No, I. I just. I love those because, especially too. Like, I, I find such a such value out of your band's first name because no matter what it is, it's so directly tied to the sound where it's like, you know, I could tell you the first band that I played in before Taken was called Doomed Society. You know exactly what that sounds like, Sam. Like, it's just perfect in the same way. Yeah. So, you know, since my man, like if we had, if we had, if we knew it was going to become what it did, maybe we would have like, it was definitely a, we have a show coming up situation. Um, (laughs) Totally. it, it, It stuck and it became so inextricably us and, people wrapped their heads around it and came up with whatever meanings they they wanted to apply to it and obviously we were fans of reversal of man and other bands with very long names you know originally i was like it should be called since by man came death 
because I had probably just heard about like um, Trail of the Dead or something, you know, and I was just like yep. long, long, obscure, weird name. This is it. Um, and then everyone's like, no way. That's too long. <laughs> so it just became Sense <laughs> by Man. And then that's just the name of the band. And now it means something. Yep, exactly. Right now it's now it's imbued with meaning because you've put art, you know, slash music behind it. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> the uh, in, in getting to know you and like all the you know shows we played and the time that we spent together, you've always struck me just as a human being, like you know, very uh, affable, um, and like you would you're comfortable in a lot of different situations, given the fact that people do pay attention to the vocalists of bands maybe more than the drummer or whatever. Was that always kind of your personality? Were you able to, you know, kind of dip in and out of different friend groups and interests and stuff like that? Or is that something that you kind of grew into? I think my core friend group in, empowered me to sort of take that energy and comfort level everywhere. Um, you know, I've never felt like a shapeshifter, but I have been able to um, go a lot of places, engage with a lot of people and, you know, if not feel comfortable, get along, which is a central desire. Maybe there's some Midwestern you want to be liked component in there, or you want to please people. But I really don't think that's it. I mean, I do think that by the time, I think one of the number one things that like being in a band like prepares you for, especially like a small band that nobody cares about before you start touring, it just really expands your ability or sharpens your like knives um, in, in, in terms of like being able to go into these different spaces and get along with folks or find some connective tissue or get along with, you know, people or be like just uncomfortable and be fine with it whether that's like physical discomfort, like sleeping in a van with five guys for days um, or social awkwardness. Um, but I think as opposed to being like a guy that was friends with a bunch of different people, I had such a strong friend unit that lasted so long and continues to last to this day that like I could kind of take that anywhere and feel confident that I had, I could probably have a conversation and get along with folks if I needed to. Um, I think that's coupled with a really like a genuine interest in people. So like my whole thing is that even if something is terrible, I'm probably going to kind of like it because I'm going to become fascinated in how terrible it is or how much of a disaster something is or how much of an asshole somebody is. There is some like interest or value level there where I'm like, I just want to see how far I can take this. Um, or I want to like lean into it a little bit or, this house is absolutely insane and disgusting. Let's sleep here because it's been offered to us. You know, this sort of drawn towards the not seedier because that's not what I'm talking about, but just like uh, I have a, I do have some sort of like uh, innate attraction toward towards um, like some shittier scenarios or weirder people. I don't want to spend all my time with them, but I am attracted to it. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I get where you're coming from. And I guess kind of on top of that, the notion of, of touring and playing shows, you know, outside of your own uh, state or even, you know, county, 
as you started to experience that, did you take like that to a duck to water or was that something that you had to grow to like? I would say I took to it like a duck to water. I mean, we just really had such a good time on tour almost all of the time. Again, even if like shows were falling down around us, we really liked each other. The band did not fight a lot. The fights that we did have were rarely interpersonal. They were almost always about the creative or the direction of the band. Once we would be on tour on the road, it was like a blast. I mean, it was just the best time. Loved going to different places. Loved going to big, cool places. Like loved being in New York City, you know, with, with no parents as much as we loved, you know, absolutely terrible bottom of the barrel shows and, you know, mobile or whatever. We were always right, looking for right. adventures sort of beyond the shows. So we managed to have a very good time. Largely, I guess, because we had really strong friendships and we traveled well together, which is not something you're clocking when you're younger. But I know so many bands that were very talented and just really didn't, they just didn't like the tour experience. They didn't get along as soon as they kind of left the city limits. They were always really beaten down by shows being bad. I mean, enough show, enough bad shows in a row and you get pretty down on the enterprise. But we never stopped enjoying traveling and we never thought, well, let's not go on tour. Let's just put out some records or something like that. I mean, it was just always a part of it. And why we all liked it so much, I don't know. I don't know if everyone liked it quite as much as I did, but um, I get the sense that we did because we did it for a long time. Right. <laughs> and that I, I do think there, especially too, that that era, you know, the early 2000s, like there, there was this shift in the idea that you could be a quote unquote, you know, touring musician. I mean, that was very hand to mouth where it's like, all right, I'm touring 10 months out of the year and, you know, I can pay my rent while I'm gone. And then I return home to, you know, a transient job or whatever. But just that core idea of what you're talking about, where you, you know, the arguments that you would get in with your bandmates were about the creative process, as opposed to, like you said, just, you kind of couldn't stand being around each other. Cause that's what obviously leads many bands to be like, Oh gosh, I got to spend this much time with these people and we're away from home. Oh gosh, this is awful. Yeah. I mean, since by man is such a, like, it would be the worst behind the music of all time. I mean, because we were, there was so little drama. I mean, there are funny stories. Obviously we went through our handful of bass players. There were moments at the time that hit sort of very heavy, you know, they were very, they were heavy blows or they were emotional and we were upset at the time or hurt at the time, but those were fleeting and pale in comparison to this sort of social dysfunction that so many other bands I know went through. Um, you know, so, so most of our energy was devoted towards playing good shows and putting out interesting music and like really thinking about the project because we weren't trying to kill each other. Um, you know, nobody bottomed out. Nobody had big drug problems you know, like it just, it wasn't that dramatic, but in replace in, you know, in place of that drama, all of our, you know, we have insane stories that are very funny. There are shenanigans, there's robust creativity, you, you know, again, it's, I mean, it's not, I've never thought about it this way, but it's not dissimilar from like, you know, my, my upbringing or my, you know, my situation with like my parents' divorce. It's like, 
the anger was never inside the house. All of our aggression or our anger, our us against the world was it's like was always outward looking. And the band had definitely had that too, coming from a city like Milwaukee, being maybe a weird match for our record label, playing with bands that we got along with really well, but maybe weren't sonically as dialed in as the audience wanted it to be. Um, We always kind of like had this, it's us against the world mentality. And that kept our, our interpersonal relationships pretty tight. Right. And on that topic, like you're mentioning with the, you know, alignment of you guys, you know, with Rev in particular, and this isn't, you know, trying to uh, talk crap on Rev because clearly that was a, you know, a, a good partnership for you guys because it, you know, got your music out to a wider audience and everything like that. It, it was such a, like <laughs> that, that time, especially for bands in your guys's, you know, ecosystem where it was like, you know, screamo bands weren't ever supposed to, you know, sign to a label that had barcodes and like, <laughs> like that was the the dying gasp of that, you know, argument that existed. But I know that you guys received, you know, blowback from like, wait, you guys since my man's put a record on Rev, like, oh my gosh, like, or was that just like, you know, completely overblown and I'm misremembering it. Right. If only we knew the heights of sellout <laughs> that were to come. Um, <laughs> I mean, what we all tied ourselves uh, in knots over back then, uh, it's so quaint to think about. The irony is that we were probably right back then. And everyone that went the other way turned out to be wrong because things have only really gone one direction and they haven't gotten better. And this isn't like an old guy kvetching about how the music's not good anymore. But the scene as we knew it was shattered in many ways by the commercialization of the underground right when it was gaining steam to be very big on its own. Um, And I know that there are young bands that I don't know anything about that are having like killer shows tonight in venues that I've never heard of. But, you know, when we met, there was this mini, there was this very, there was a glowing period of enough internet to get the word out but not so much internet that you were beholden to it and a follower count in this sort of slavish way that really defines the creative choices and, you know, automatically pushes towards like a certain degree of homogenization at the very least, because um, everyone's trying to like put together packages that make sense, uh, you know, for touring specifically, but also labels and things like that. Um, So, I think I'm like losing, I'm lost my thread a little bit there. Um, no, it's okay. But just the idea of, like you said, the, uh, how people perceive, cause like y- you guys choosing to sign with Rev was going to get two separate reactions. One from the people who, you know, were part of the, uh, like you said, the, the vocal minority of people saying that, you know, since my man, like, oh, they used to be good. Now they signed a Rev and they got barcodes or whatever. <laughs> and then you had, you know, at that time, the label was shifting in sound from being, you know, a traditional, quote unquote, old school hardcore label to pushing the envelope and signing, you know, you guys and Curl Up and Die and Drowning Man, whatever, like all all these type of bands that didn't fit the mold. So like, you were receiving it from both ends, I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, with like with Rev, there were the two components, there was a bit of pushback from like the, you know, the, like the really DIY, aggressively underground, you know, um, highly insular community 
So there was that component that we kind of bumped up against. And then there was like the sonic mismatch of preconceived notions of what a band on Rev was supposed to be. So we were getting it from both ends. We were playing, you know, we had breakdowns, but not enough for some people. We had fast blast beats and screamy parts, but not enough for some people. So oftentimes we found ourselves kind of in between, you know, some, some, uh, some of like our micro categories within the scene. Um, but, but I think that ultimately led to the people that liked us really, really liked us and really latched on to us because of our specificity and the selling out thing again, because that, because so much of that changed so quickly, like what, what was totally foreboding was gone two years later for like most people, because the business end of it, which I was so disinterested in and almost antagonistic towards and I wouldn't say I ever did anything intentionally to shoot ourselves in the foot or prevent popularity, but we certainly didn't do all sorts of things that maybe would have accelerated the popularity because they felt wrong. And there were individual shows that we played with individual bands where we would have the audience for a while. And then I, I know we would do or say something that would totally lose them. And it wasn't to be antagonistic only, but it was to like remind us and them who we were. And it was sort of this take it or leave it proposition because I can't really think of anything more, you know, more intrinsic to punk and hardcore than that. Is that like, this is only one thing we've only created this band. We're only one type of band. All of the bands that are trying to be other bands. Those are the bad ones. We are, uh, this is us in, and, and it is a take it or leave it. Um, proposition and you know looking back at it now it's like I, I made the right choice we were never our only desire and professionalism was to keep doing it and to do it better not to like make a living or make it big let me tell you one of the coolest things about doing this podcast is tripping across companies that I think are doing amazing things and I want you to know about evilgreed.net is one of them. I was only tangentially familiar, but then once I met Pascal, who lives over in Germany and does this amazing company, he clued me in on what they do. And so basically, they're a web store, can offer stores for bands, record labels, et cetera, et cetera. But they act with a very specific point of view. They don't bring every single band underneath the sun. They're not this huge warehouse of like merch and vinyl and whatever. They pick the labels they want to work with. They pick the bands they want to work with. And let me just give you a little sample of what they got going on. They have label stores for stuff like Deathwish, Closed Casket Activities, Bridge 9, 6131 Records, Metal Blade. And on top of it, they have some really, really awesome pieces of merch from some of your favorite bands like Sun and Botch. And the list could go on. I just want you to go to evilgreed.net because I will give you a discount using this promo code, 100 words, 10% off your entire order. And I know you, you, you maybe heard Germany and you're like, yo, that's scary. I live in the States. I can't order from them. That is why they're advertising to you. First of all, the shipping prices are very economical and it gets to you very quickly. So go to evilgreed.net, use the promo code, 100 words. It gets you 10% off your entire order. And, you know, maybe buy a bot shirt for me. Just, like, send it to me. Please? Maybe? No, that's that's a little too desperate. But evilgreed.net, thank you so much for your continued support. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. There was a sense of all of the influences that you guys were pulling in, not only sonically, but you know, visually with the band and all the art we were doing and shirts and stuff like that, that it was pulling influences that were clearly outside of what you know a band would get influenced by traditionally speaking. <laughs> so it's like you were, you know, with your obsession with film, you were able to pull some of that stuff in. Uh, I'm guessing because of what you were talking about earlier in regards to the fact that you would have these creative arguments and conflicts like, you know, most bands do, but you were really focused on the creative aspect of it. Was it the idea that uh, you guys were deliberately trying to pull these things from all parts of your life? And that was something that you guys were always excited about? Yeah, you know, I think that like, you know, since my man had a unique sound, even within a, a, a sort of scene of bands with unique sounds, because we were all as individuals gen- genuinely coming to like the music specifically from like very different places. You know, John Kraft, our drummer, who was like really the glue that held some of the chaos together. I mean, he was like metronomically tight, very dependable. He was best at backing up the trailer. You know, we called him daddy, but not in a sexy way, just in a dependable supportive way you know he liked orange nine millimeter you could not pay me now or then to listen to orange nine millimeter i apologize to any of the orange nine millimeter fans and and or band members out there listening to this but like so you know and then i'm but i I want us to sound like angel hair and john wouldn't listen to angel hair with a (laughs) if you paid him (laughs) right right so you know you know, and and Kevin, our guitar player, our our consistent, our constant guitar player throughout the entire experience, you know, never took a lesson, never learned tabs or music or anything. And and so the the guitar work that he is coming up with is just like from his brain to his fingers, you know. So just the influences were super broad. Our taste preferences were extremely broad. Um, and so that's like the, that's how the that's why the music was kind of hard to write. Uh, but really worked in my opinion, when it hit, it hit and it really did sound unique within a, you know, within a, certainly a, a genre with, with its tropes and, and, you know, uh, sonic hangups. Um, Mm -hmm. so that's that. And then for me to stay interested in the kind of presentation standpoint, the art standpoint, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, I, a 20, a 19 to 24 year old, um, you know, film student, you're just operating in a band that's like catching some steam. You're operating, you're, you're vibrating at a very high level of pretension at that point. 
Um, so I, sure. you know, I'm, but the references that I'm like pulling are probably becoming not like explicitly or purposefully dense. Um, but they're as interesting sort of as possible for me to engage with, you know, so we're pulling co- quotes from satanic verses and we're pulling art, we're pulling art design and aesthetics from, you know, jazz records which you know refused to done as well so it's not like none of this is happening in a vacuum and we weren't the first people to do it we were very committed to a certain we really committed to like pushing things for ourselves so the 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 continuity there's a lot of continuity i guess um in our direction because we 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 began looking inward as well as outward as we move forward and so we do the first record and it's very like cut and paste graphic design heavy and sort of this like you know future retro aesthetic by the time we're doing the last record there's there's no word you know there's just a a xerox symbol of a camera aperture on the cover on a white album and then there's almost no graphic design to it the entire thing is like a photo spread which is obviously the influence of cinema coming in um but it was like always trying to what can we do differently that is still intrinsically us? Um, what can we, how much value or how much interest can we have for the listener or for the fan who is interested in like digging in? If you just want to like rip your friends apart in the pit, we're going to have that for you. But if you want to like read all the lyrics and catch the references and then go read a big, long, boring book, That'll be there for you too. Right. Whatever, whatever you want, we're here for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, which is really like, it, it really is just, it, it was always like, what are the things that I like? What am I really getting turned on by? And it was sort of, whether it was like film, music, books, um, art, you know, art or visual art. It was like, what's like, what's giving me the most to chew on and what's kind of complicating matters in a way as much as possible without being uh like purposely obtuse sure yeah no i I, yeah it totally does it totally does and as the uh you know band was winding down and you were you know looking at real life uh (laughs) to be able to understand like what the next steps were i mean i know you've obviously been dedicated to the film world and directing and commercials and stuff like that was um was that kind of immediately apparent in regards to that was the next step that you were going to do or did did you have to kind of be like all right well i gotta you know figure or i gotta like go down all of these other paths in order to maybe end up where you're at now no, I mean, my, my engagement with film kind of never stopped, though it certainly was on like a pretty severe hiatus, definitely during like the highest functioning years of the band. But we had reached a point in the band's career, and I'm sure everybody in the band at that time was like Brad Clifford, Eric Alonzo, Kevin Herwig, John Kraft, you know, I'm sure everybody would have like a slightly different take on kind of went down da- on, on what went down, but you could feel uh, life for everyone encroaching. And that wasn't to say that people were like ready to get married and settle down, which happens, but we were still pretty young, even for, you know, even for that. Um, 
even for like a city like maybe Milwaukee, where maybe people do that earlier than some do. But we could feel the pressures of life interrupting the creative process. You know, we always intended to finish up our rev contract, which we did, and then do another release with um, another, you know, another label. And, and we were excited about some of the potential opportunities to do that, but nothing was like offered kind of, it was all sort of based on like, what's the next record. And we had been touring a ton in support of the last record pictures of a hotel apocalypse. And, and then we were like, okay, we're going home and we're going to write the record. And while we were home, the writing process was really difficult. I was presented with an opportunity to go to Argentina for like a very long time, like five months or something to work on a movie for a friend. And I felt like I have to do this. And I know what that means for the guys in the band. Because even though I was just the singer, quote unquote, I was not the kind of singer that would like show up after they wrote songs for like three weeks. And then I would just like come in and just sing along. I was always at practice. We were always in it together. There wasn't a lot of like, people would come with riffs, but it was really communal writing. I mean, we were just like in the room a lot hashing it out. Um, very, very diplomatic. And I knew I said, I was like, if you guys want to write, I'll come back. We'll hustle to like put everything together. Um, I'll kind of write like, um, lyrics. I'm like, but what I need to sort of say here and now is that as situations like this present themselves, I am feeling compelled do that or to take those opportunities. And I just want to be honest with you guys so that you know that. And kind of as right. I said that, everyone had a different thing. You know, <laughs> like uh, you know, John's like, yeah, I don't I don't want to like not have a real job anymore and be broke all the time. Brad is like, <laughs> we don't tour nearly enough for my tastes. Um you know, Kevin had a number of other bands. He had other like screen printing, you you know, he's beginning a screen printing business. There were a lot of things going on and you just kind of like in one conversation felt the, the drift very acutely. And that was, that was basically it. I mean, that's kind of like why we broke up. It was, you know, people gravitating in different directions and none of that would have happened if we had like 10 killers for, you know, ready for a record it's because we had spent six months writing three songs and they were like barely where we wanted them to be. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That's, uh, and especially too, where it's like the, (laughs) the idea of being able to exist and be present in the way that you always had with the band. Like once people get pulled into different directions, it's so hard to be like, Oh, I understand why you're interested in this other thing. Like, of course, but then, you know, you can't, you can't fault people <laughs> for wanting to explore this. You're just like, yeah, okay, well, I guess this has re- reached its logical conclusion. For sure. And because Since My Man was not, I mean, there were plenty of bands that toured way more than we did. I mean, you know, there, we all know the bands that are just like absolute road warriors. We toured a yep. lot. But regardless of touring, the the intensity was high. There was no, in my mind, really in anybody's mind, there was no like muted version of Since By Man where we kind of just like kick around and we do it on the side. We had always operated at this very high, very charged, very intense sort of all encompassing level. Uh, And to do any like half assed version of it was never even really an option 
Um, I don't even remember anybody presenting it. Like, well, let's just like, let's be a part-time band. Nobody said yeah. that. It was no, only right. one thing. Um, <laughs> yep. And, you know, and then we were still like, well, let's like put these last three songs on a seven inch. There was some talk of that. It took us a year for everybody to get it together um, to play our last show, uh, which was like, couldn't have been better. Um, couldn't have like worked better. The show was great. It was like a really a singular moment in my life um, in terms of the people we brought together, the the way we did it. Um, but it was, yeah, it was sort of, it was very definitive. It wasn't like a, it wasn't, it didn't peter out. We were like on big, we were on like constant tours, came home to write. That wasn't working. Before I left for this trip, we had sort of called it and we just knew we would play a formal last show at some point. And it took about a year and a half, like I said, to make that happen. And it was kind right, of going right. out, doing it our way, you know, maybe to a fault. <laughs> sure, sure. But it's like, yeah, you wanted to, you know, put the the earmark on the end of that uh, chapter to use a very tired metaphor. Uh, the, I, I was, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I paid attention to the the work that you were doing from, you know, either commercials or directing. And I really, uh, the sign painters documentary that you did, it seemed like that was a moment in which, you know, your, your work got uh, not only recognized on a, scale beyond just the kind of industry where it's like, Oh, you know, Sam Macon, like he knows what he's doing. <laughs> and yeah. there was, um, you know, the idea of like being a part of film festivals and all that sort of stuff. Um, how, how was it for you to, you know, have people start to pay attention to the art? Cause I mean, you know, in the commercial world, as you're putting these things together, like it's not like that your name flashes, you know, across the marquee and big lights. So I'm sure this was a different experience for you, or I, I might be incorrect in that. No, you're correct. I mean, thankfully, uh, being a commercial director is a highly anonymous activity because sometimes you don't want your name to flash in bright lights <laughs> at the sure, end of sure. any given piece of uh, branded content. But making, you know, there was a lot about making um uh sign painters which was just like maybe four or five years after uh the band ended i think would in terms of when we started to make the thing that like brought me right back to the 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 life of being in a band i mean it was a self-financed small documentary we were traveling all over the country uh my my me my um co-director faith levine who i know through the music scene um and who was a young punk herself and is still um, still in it, um, you know, and our, and our DP Travis, we're traveling, we're ending up at extremely random places. We're engaging with extremely random people. We're sleeping all in one hotel room, on the cheap, um, we're driving really long distances to talk to somebody for an hour, which is not unlike, uh, playing a show. So that like, was like, that was like getting back into the groove of just like what it's like to be on the road and not really know what you're going to like have a schedule, but not really know what you're going to get into. So that was really like, I really clicked with just the experience of how that film specifically was made and the way it resonated with tour. And then when the, when the movie did well and we were going on tour essentially with the film um, and screening and doing Q and A's, it was like, I felt, I felt weirdly good at this thing I had never done. I had made, I had done motion picture work. I had made short films, music videos, commercials but that doesn't prepare you to then like 
get to do a Q&A in front of a bunch of people. And just like, I was like, why is this so easy? And I'm like, because of the band, because of having right. gotten on stage in front of strangers. So, and, and to take that even one step further, when I began directing like professionally or, you know, when people ask me how long I've been a filmmaker, I'm like for money or just in general, because in general, right. since I was like 12, but for money, since I was like 28, uh, but like even, even walking onto set and being able to sort of tell people who have been in it longer than you, who know more than you, who are, have professionalized their career in a way that you are yet to, because you're so green, the ability to like walk onto a set and tell people what to do was more informed by my experience of being in a band than it was by me being, you know, my, by me watching art cinema at film school. That's for sure. Right. Yeah. It's like the, the sometimes, uh, you know, false confidence that can, uh, come about where it's like, oh yeah, I don't actually know what I'm doing, but I know enough to be able to like trip through this or whatever. And, and then also, like you said, because you're walking into this with some level of experience and doing some version of this, it just helps you, you know, put a confident foot forward, whether or not you should put that foot forward or not. Yeah. I mean, Ray, I don't know what it's like for you, but the amount of the amount of po- the amount of power you get from being able to survive a very small shitty show is is such is so valuable in a way that being able to put on a killer show in front of like a thousand people i'm not sure it prepares you the same way as as being able to own a small show where nobody showed up and nobody cares like if you can get up in front of 12 disinterested people and put on a show you can do it just like vaporizes the idea, in my opinion, of stage fright, because you've already done right. like one of the most like raw and naked sort of performance things you could possibly do, which is like scream your heart out in front of people that look that barely even see you. If you can do that, you can get up in front of a group of people and talk to them about something you're relatively knowledgeable about, you know? So yeah. all yeah. levels of band success, both very low and very high, prepared me for a lot of what it actually takes, not to like make a film, but what it takes to be a director. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, two last things I want to hit on was the, uh, you actually mentioned this a few times where as you have, you know, been traveling around in the, you know, film commercial industry, the similarities between the two worlds of, you know, playing in bands and, and putting together, uh, you know, projects was very similar. How, I presume, like you said, you have run across maybe not a large amount of people, but people that do have experience with, you know, playing e- either attending and or playing shows in small sweaty rooms. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's always a trip because it's like anyone that knows me from the band life is can sometimes be surprised to hear what I do now. And anyone that um, I've met through like filmmaking finds out that I was in this hardcore band. They have a hard time understanding that. It (laughs) takes the perfect person to have experienced both to be like, oh my gosh, we have such a shorthand on so many things. Like so many types of like life experiences, types of people, weird specificity of group think and, and, uh, individuals i mean it's just like when you meet somebody that you that you if not personally overlapped in the scene but have but had they had their own experience within you know like a underground you know punk music scene you're just like okay we've skipped we've just skipped like 
20 steps. We're on the same page. And everyone else in this room is looking at us like we're just absolutely speaking gibberish, which, you know, maybe we are. But we we know what we're talking about. And there's an immediate identification. You know, not everyone I met while in a band um, were good guys uh, yep. or interesting people for that matter. I mean, we have entire, you know, I have entire, we have entire songs about how dangerous and bad people in bands are, uh, especially as they get more and more um, attention and idol worship. So it's not like everybody was great, but a lot of the people were. And, um, and there's like a relatively safe assumption that if you meet somebody who seems genuine and nice in passing, and then you find out they were also in the scene, um, you know, it's going to be like a really strong sort of accelerated connection. At least that's been my experience. Yeah, that, I, I agree. I definitely, I mean, like you said, the shorthand is there. You both have the understanding that you probably have so many of the same experiences or friends. And yeah, it's just, it's really easy to jump off from that point. So with, with that being said, like how, you know, because uh, music is, you know, still important to you, like, how do you, I, I guess, kind of interact with not even so much like the scene, but like, how does, you know, music kind of inform either the work that you do or obviously the recreational activities that you're a part of? I mean, the one thing that's inescapable is the ways in which specifically the kind of political motivated underground music scene of like the late nineties, early aughts has unfortunately prepared me for our current moment, which I would argue is not current, but from a political standpoint, the sort of decline of Western civilization that we're all experiencing is something that anyone that went to like a Los Crudos show when they were 16 is completely equipped to deal with to some extent. That doesn't mean I'm not depressed or despondent about it, but the idea of, looking at what's going on now in American politics, but really global politics specifically, it's not new. It's not newly frightening. It's not newly scary. If you're like, you know, some pretentious asshole at 16, like reading all of Noam Chomsky, um, you know, you're relatively equipped to deal with like some of the recent traumas of how bad things are politically uh, in this country. And it's kind of, you know, it's hard not to just think that like, everyone else is just caught up to what we were all screaming in basements about 20 years ago. And I don't know if you, if that resonates with you at all or not, but I continuously bump into people whom are really smart folks. Their hearts are in a right, in the right place, but for, but to hear them talk about the state of politics now, my, you know, my, um, without passing judgment, I'm always a little bit crestfallen. I'm like, Oh man, this is exactly why we're here. It's because you're just seeing how fucked up everything is now because it's been going in the wrong direction for so long. Right. Uh, yeah. You're like, you um, don't, you don't remember these lyrics that were penned in 1995. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why weren't you more mad about George Bush? Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. So that's like one thing that's like, that's like the dark side of, of how, my engagement with with music and the scene more specifically is is living within me. It's primarily from like um, you know a socioeconomic political standpoint, more than like my daily intake of like what bands I'm listening to. 
It has way more right. to do with the ethos, the how to treat people and who our enemies are than like what what my Spotify playlist looks like, which is pretty random at this point, to be to be honest. So there's that. <laughs> you know, right. And then just like, you know, and then the, the positive side of it is that like all the old bands are going on tour again you know not all of them but like <laughs> yeah. i've been able yeah. to like you know it's like went to go see like these arms or snakes guys play this summer and it was like a fucking blast and i can't believe steve can still do it because i would be dead um right <laughs> and um you know and like and then you know like cactus club which was this really central venue in milwaukee wisconsin to like our whole scene is like now owned by this really great woman kelsey kaufman who has turned the space like totally around or evolved it into like the new you know the new generational like embodiment of what it is to be punk and an underground artist by making it way more inclusive than it ever was when it was a bunch of like white guys yelling at each other into you know a far more inclusive you know really interesting creative space for you know just a significantly more diverse group of people which is great to like experience that now as like an old head when i go back home um you know, to, so to see like the resid, you know, to see old friends, to see the positivity that came from like a scene that I was involved with really specifically. And I love hearing about like what the, like the freaky shit that the kids are into, which makes me sound like way older than I am. But like, right. I'm just, <laughs> yeah, I'm always like aware that like what is going on now I can enjoy, but it's like not for me and it will always continue. Um, in some capacity, right. you know? Yeah. Which is, which is awesome. I feel good about that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Just the idea that it's like, yes, there, you know, musically things will evolve. Things will change. There will be, uh, you know, grains of things that you recognize or, you know, completely cyclical movements where it's like, it's so rad that these, you know, 18 year old kids are just ripping off bands from the early nineties. And that's awesome. Like you just see these little trends happening. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's exciting that you can see all of the the lasting effects of the things that, you know, felt so ephemeral and something that you it's like, well, I hopefully this will last, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for sure, you know, it was a, a real feather in the cap for like some random Brooklyn vegan article like a year or so to go a year or so ago, like shouted out like like influential early two thousands screamo bands that like seemed to be influencing the kids and we, we were on this list and the guy is straight up like he's like i don't know i don't even know if anybody's actually listening to this band but it's hard not to think there's some influences here that they were ahead of their time and i'm like hell yes one guy that works for brooklyn <laughs> vegan so it's <laughs> yeah you're like cool that's the, yeah. that that's our legacy we got it man we got it <laughs> yeah it, it is such i mean because you're still you guys like taking it still plays right occasionally i mean occasionally. honest we're lucky yeah we're lucky enough to like get invited to japan every other year so like yeah and we just put up music when we can but yeah it's it's still um like you said the the effects of the things that you can see where it's just like oh wow like that's cool like i'm glad that melodic hardcore still lives in not only bands that are you know 15 years younger than us but that people still care about this and it just you know, everything is cyclical and it's just cool to, you know, be old enough to recognize the cycles now, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean, we, we, I feel, it feels so times since by man, not the scene or not the experience because of all these like reverberating components that we're talking about, but the band yeah. is so like the, the band's history 
and the experience of being in it and working with those guys to make the music is so specific and so time locked in a way that it's hard to imagine what like a, a current or modern incarnation of that would even be. I know that we would probably overthink it even more and never finish the song <laughs> ever because that would take it <laughs> totally. even more seriously, which is like sure. you know, probably not the right way to look at it. But it's like, I'm just glad that it exists for people to return to. I'm glad it exists for the people that were there. And I'm feel honored that I got to be there with everybody, people like you and all of other friends that we've met, like all over the country. You know, it's one of like the great joys of my life, even when sometimes it feels far away. Yeah, it's because ne- to your point, yeah, it's never even though it may feel far away, it's like, you know, there you would not see a person for many years and then just be able to dive back in because it's like, oh, yeah, like we've already spent time with each other at shows or whatever. And like, it's just, yeah, it's something that like you were talking about earlier, the shorthand exists, even if you, you know, fast forward 20 years, it'd be like, oh, yeah, it's like, yeah, of course, it's Sam, of course. Yeah, yeah, we'll just dive right back in. It's no problem. <laughs> For sure. And I am like always really like heartened to see how everybody changes and everybody gets into different shit and everybody has different lives. But it is it does see it. There's a certain like steadiness and personality. Definitely the people that you end up having long sustained connections with, even if you go years without talking, where you're like, oh, yeah, it was like a real group of like little. I mean, it was like a it was a big community of like strong early defined personalities, which allow for people to evolve, but not go through wild changes, um, you know, as they head towards like their late thirties, early forties or whatever. What an interesting human being, right? I love Sam so much. And I was very excited to have him on the show. It was, I was trying to trace back. I think I asked him to do the podcast like three or so years ago. Maybe it was even longer ago. I ran into him at a show at the Will Turn in Los Angeles. And I was like, dude, you need to do the podcast. It would be really fun because we haven't really got in depth. And yeah, you know, it takes some time. <laughs> so anyways, thank you very much, Sam, for letting me punish you for an hour. It was my absolute pleasure. And next week, speaking of absolute pleasures, I have a fun conversation with my friend Edward Gibbs, who is the vocalist from an amazing band in the UK called Devil Sold His Soul. I mean, if you like bands like, you know, Isis, Cult of Luna, all that sort of like post-rock, post-hardcore, whatever you want to call it, very long and atmospheric songs, but uh, it's, yeah, they're really, really good. I've loved them for quite some time. And Ed actually blows my mind because he, he recounts a story on the podcast of when we first met which just tickled my fancy because it was a very funny story. So anyways, that's what we got next week. Edward Gibbs from Devil Sold His Soul. And until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, 
it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.